Genesis 35, where we began last week looking at some ordinary things. We saw ordinary obedience. Jacob finally went where he was supposed to go, where he had vowed to go. And we saw ordinary worship. When he got there, he did the thing that he was supposed to do. Now, uh, certainly, again, let me reiterate, uh, calling these things ordinary doesn't mean that they're unimportant. Uh, I mean, ordinary in the sense of not highly unusual, not spectacular. For for the Christian, obedience and worship ought to be ordinary, ought to be what we ordinarily do. And so as we finish chapter 35 this morning, we're still dealing with the ordinary and the familiar. Ordinary grace continues to be the recurring theme of our time in Genesis. Uh, The necessary undercurrent that keeps the whole story moving, that that keeps the whole thing from crashing and burning before it gets off the ground good. Now, there is one extraordinary thing in these verses, one spectacular and attention-grabbing thing, one act of sin and wickedness and evil, that will only make the ordinary grace feel that much more like the necessity that it is and cause that grace to shine even more brightly. So we're going to explore all that together. And eventually that will even lead us to more ordinary grace here at the table. Again, not ordinary because unimportant or unnecessary. Ordinary meaning not Unusual. We should not be surprised to find grace in God's Word or in God's sacrament. So let me invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word, Genesis 35, verse 16 to the end. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old 
and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. May God bless the preaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, it's the second half of this rather ordinary chapter. Uh, filled with a lot of, of details that we're not sure exactly how they fit together or fit with the larger story of redemption that you are telling. Uh, so help us to see that this morning. Help us to see how these rather ordinary verses show us your ordinary and very needful grace. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are soft and malleable, hearts that you are shaping and conforming, even unto the image of Jesus, your Son, and our Savior, in whose name we ask these things. Amen. Please be seated. Um, So our verses this week open with another death. There are three deaths total in this chapter. Uh, Last week, as Jacob was arriving to Bethel, mention is made of the death of Deborah, who was Uh, Rebecca's nurse, and uh, that she is mentioned at all means perhaps that she was viewed with affection, that she was maybe even like a a member of the family, probably had some role in raising Jacob and Esau. So that's as Jacob arrives at Bethel, Deborah dies, and as he departs Bethel, his beloved Rachel the one he served Laban 14 years for, because he had to have her as his wife, and now she is gone too. And there's something fairly ordinary about her death in a couple of regards. Sadly, death during childbirth in those days was quite ordinary, not unusual at all. But Perhaps it strikes you as unusual. Maybe you think it's a little bit out of the ordinary that that Jacob should lose the love of his life now on the heels of his recent obedience. In the whole three steps forward, two steps back cycle, he's recently had a few steps forward. He finally made good on that vow to go back to Bethel and to worship God there and And bad things shouldn't happen to us when we're obeying God, should they? Do you ever ask that? Do you ever wonder that? Well, the fact of the matter is that bad things can and do happen in seasons of disobedience and in seasons of obedience. They happen like that. They ordinarily happen like that because we live in a fallen world. Sorrow and pain and suffering and yes, even death are ordinary. They are not unusual occurrences. And our obedience does not exempt us from their happening. Nor does our disobedience necessarily bring them into our lives. We need to get rid of that notion too. They're certainly not going to come into our lives as means of punishment. All the punishment that you and I deserve was laid on Christ. He suffered that punishment. So if sometimes the hard things are coming into our life, coming to us from the Lord, they might come as discipline 
They might come as means of Him training and teaching and correcting us, but they will never come as a means to make us pay for what we've done. Jesus has already paid in full for what we've done. The experience of pain and sorrow are an ordinary part of life in a fallen world. So Rachel dies. And with what apparently are her final dying words, she names her son, as you see there in verse 18. Uh, We talked some about idols and idolatry back when Jacob was pursuing and marrying Rachel and when she was barren and desperately wanting children. And when we look back at that now, sadly, there are a couple of things that they're at least poignant. Perhaps they are just bitterly ironic. Uh, Beginning of chapter 30, when she was deep in the throes of her barrenness and infertility, uh, she lashes out at her husband. She says, give me children or I shall die. This inordinate desire for children on her part, this idolatry in essence, has clouded her thinking. She's not thinking clearly. Much later when she finally does give birth to a son, why does she name him Joseph? Do you remember? Because the meaning in Joseph's name is tied to the prayer that she was praying at the time. Lord, give me another. And now we see both of these things come into play. The Lord does add to her another son, but sadly, it's not the lack of children that kills her. It's the birth of this second son that takes her life. It's the Lord's answer to her prayer for another son that takes her life. And rather than dying realizing that God has answered her prayer, she dies full of sorrow and seeks to name her son accordingly. But Jacob apparently doesn't want to saddle his son with such an ominous-sounding name. Hi, I'm my parents' sorrow. Nice to meet you. And so he changes what Rachel had chosen, son of my sorrow, to son of my right hand which is very much in line with Rachel being his favorite and favored wife, and now Benjamin, to have a name reflecting this favorite status. Well, the end of verse 22, we see the sons of Jacob were 12. His family is complete. And this is also quite ordinary in one sense, because his family's complete. He's got 12 sons. What does this mean? It means God has been faithful to his promises. That's quite ordinary when it comes to the Lord. If the Lord promises something, you can usually expect it. You can always expect it to be done. Our passage ends with one more ordinary grief, the third death in this chapter, that of Isaac, Jacob and Esau's father. We don't don't have mention made of Rebekah's death, but apparently that has already taken place uh, without mention. Those are all the ordinary things. I skipped over something in the middle of the passage. 
that in one sense it too is quite ordinary, but in another sense it is extraordinary. It's ordinary because it's sin. It's a fallen human being acting as such. It's extraordinary. It is unusual in the heinous nature of the act itself. So I'm talking about Reuben, of course, in verse 22. He takes his father's wife. Um, for, for all practical purposes, Bilhah was another of Jacob's wives. It's really the only way to look at it. And, and Reuben sleeps with her. Yowza. Right, this, is, this is off the charts bad. Uh, this specific act gets called out later in Scripture as something that not even the pagans do. Even the pagans know this is off limits. And it's something that will warrant the death penalty once the law is formalized and, and, and codified. So what in the world is this about? Apparently this isn't some sick and twisted romantic or passionate pursuit on Reuben's part. Several of the commentators point out this is a power play. This is a political move on Reuben's part. See, Bilhah was Rachel's servant. And now that Rachel, now that Jacob's favorite wife Rachel is gone, who is the heir apparent to replace her? to receive this favored status and position. The argument goes that Reuben must think that Bilhah is ahead of his own mother Leah in the rankings, in the pecking order. And so perhaps his vile action will make Bilhah less desirable now to Jacob. Now, this is a bit of speculation as to Reuben's motive, but I think it does fit with all of the wicked dysfunction going on in this family. It's more wicked fruit being reaped from the seeds sown earlier on. And it's a, it's a shocking little bombshell that doesn't even take up a full verse in this passage, just dropped on us. And then the author moves on as quickly as he drops the bomb. Somewhat puzzling is Jacob's response, or, or, or lack of one. It's kind of like when Dinah was defiled uh, back in chapter 34. He doesn't do anything. It just says he heard of it. Now, there's no clue why we don't have more details. Uh, in one sense, maybe that is a good thing. right? Uh, on the one hand, Scripture is never... Uh, going to sweep things under the rug. It's never going to try to hide the, the, the failings uh, and, and the mistakes uh, of, of the main characters. Biblical authors are, are quite honest about these things, often embarrassingly so, but the authors are not going to also give us a lot of unnecessary and salacious detail. We do know that Jacob isn't unmoved by this. He doesn't think it's no big deal. We just find out about it a lot later. We, we find out about it right before his death when he goes to bless his sons. 
And I'm not sure if this comes as a shock to Reuben or not, or if he knows it's coming, but uh, Genesis 49 records for us. Uh, Jacob's on his deathbed. He's about to bless his sons. And it sounds like it's starting off okay. Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. At least that's what a firstborn son ought to be. But then what does he say next? Unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. And then almost as an aside to the audience in disbelief, he went up to my couch. So this is not okay with Jacob. It is a heinous and a vile act on Reuben's part. But in the end, don't you see how this is all about God's ordinary grace? How Reuben's vile act here points us to the grace of God? Surely you see that. I probably don't even need to connect the dots for you because it's just so obvious, right? How this must be all about God's grace. Well, I'll connect them for you anyway. When it comes to Reuben specifically, uh, no, we don't really see God's grace, do we, by zeroing in just on him. We see God's grace when we zoom back out and consider the big picture, which we need to. Jacob's family is now complete. Twelve sons who will become the twelve tribes of the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, blessed by God so that all the nations of the world might be blessed through them. And so here we have the firstborn of those twelve sons acting wickedly. I mean, really Wickedly, How does that point us to the ordinary grace of God? Well, in the same way that the second-born and the third-born sons point us to the grace of God. Simeon and Levi, right? Murderers and robbers. We're, um, we're not off to a good start. We haven't even gotten to the fourth-born son yet, Judah. We'll get to him in our next series of Genesis sermons, probably next year. But he will not be left out of the incestuous indiscretions either. He's going to sleep with his daughter-in-law and get her pregnant and then threaten to kill her. But it's all just this big misunderstanding. See, he thinks he was sleeping with a prostitute. Oh. Right. These, my friends, are the first four sons of Jacob, now known and renamed as Israel. How in the world is this going to work? It's like God picked the wrong family or something. If he wanted to bless the entire world, what is he doing? What is going on? Ordinary grace is going on. God didn't choose Abraham because he had it all together. He was busy worshiping the moon, if you remember. 
He didn't choose to continue his promises through his son Isaac. He had his issues. Jacob, of course, has his issues. And God doesn't promise to continue his plan of redemption through Jacob's 12 sons because they're so great and deserving and worthy. See, his selection is not made on the basis of worth or merit or deservedness. It's made exclusively on the basis of grace. You you cannot have the sinful escapades we've already seen and the ones that we will see and it be anything but grace. Now, if you're reading along in our Bible reading plan, uh, Deuteronomy, even this week in Deuteronomy, Right. This got hammered home again and again and again. Chapter seven. You're the chosen people of the Lord. Why? Not because you're so great. Not because you're so many. Not because you're so strong. Chapter nine. You're going to possess the land. Why? Well, it's not because you're so righteous. Let me tell you that. Right. It just gets hammered home again and again. God makes a point to expose and underscore the unworthiness of the ones he has chosen. Now, why does he do that? Because he's mean? Because he wants to beat up on us and make us feel bad about ourselves? No. He does it because the more that the unworthiness of the ones that he chooses is uncovered, the more brightly grace shines. He desires to highlight his grace. This, This grace is something else. It's got some kind of power to it to be able to overcome all this mess and overcome it does. See, the the same grace that chose the unworthy and undeserving upholds the unworthy and undeserving, sometimes changing and transforming them in the process, but always working in and through them even in and through and despite their miserable failings, to still accomplish his good purpose. This grace sounds pretty amazing, right? Yeah, it is, but it's also quite ordinary. It's not unusual at all. It's just how God ordinarily acts. And it's not how he usually acts either. It's the only way he acts because the all, all that God has to choose from are unworthy and undeserving and unrighteous goons like you and me. Don't think that me calling you and me an unrighteous, undeserving goon is a bad thing, right? Don't be depressed by that. That's actually quite encouraging. God's grace is powerful. Your sin and stupidity are no match for the grace of God. Your fumblings and failings cannot thwart His eternal purposes. Don't be discouraged. Don't be afraid. God's grace has been overriding and redeeming human folly for centuries. Don't think that your screw-up this week is somehow going to undo all that. Don't give yourself that much credit. 
Whatever the worst thing you have done or can think of doing, God's ordinary grace is more powerful than that. Now, how do we know? How can we be certain? Because it's nice to say that, but how do we know that that's true? That your worst screw-up can't thwart God's purpose and plan? Well, it's not based on your worst screw-up. It's not based on my worst failing. It's based on the worst thing that has ever been done in the history of ever. Think about the vile, evil wickedness in the murdering of the Son of God. The vilest of motives, the cruelest of intentions. Did that act of evil and wickedness thwart God's plan? Did that thwart God's gospel of grace and his plan of rescue and redemption? No. It only served to solidify it. To secure it forever. It only lit the fuse for the explosion of grace that the gospel is. The death of the Son of God is the most wicked thing ever perpetrated. And all it does is unleash the power of God's grace in our lives. Grace that unconditionally accepts us. Because we're now clothed in the righteousness and acceptance of Jesus. When God looks at us now, he sees his son. And it's also the grace of transforming power. He takes our ordinary, sinful, unrighteous behavior and slowly but surely, bit by bit, Three steps forward and two steps back. Changes. Conforms us to the image of Christ our Lord. It's what he ordinarily does. To bring good to us and to bring glory to himself. Praise be to his name. Oh, Father, that your grace is such an ordinary part of who you are and how you relate to us. It's something that will take the rest of our lives to wrap our minds and our hearts around. To rest in the security that that we cannot thwart your plan and your purpose. Your grace will continue to override it just like it always has. It is that strong It is that unmerited, it is that free, it is that amazing and scandalous. It is the very thing that we need. It is the thing that we have to have if we're going to be in relationship with you. Because we will continue to stumble and fall. We would have never sought you in the first place unless you sought us first. We would have never loved you If you hadn't loved us first, but you reached out to us in the power of your grace, made us your own, changed us forever. And for that, we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Let's stand and